And uh, this is Let America Be America Again, Reimagining the American Dream. I'm Askia Muhammad, and uh, joined by Ernesto Arche in Los Angeles, and we have some headlines. Guam has elected their first female governor, Lu Leon Guerrero, the current president of the Bank of Guam has been elected the first female governor, beating incumbent opponent Republican Lieutenant Governor Ray Tenorio by more than 8,600 votes. NPR is reporting that Ayanna Presley has become the first African-American woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Massachusetts. Among other projections at this hour, Asa Hutchinson, Hutchinson, as a Republican, has been reelected in Arkansas. Charlie Baker, a Republican, reelected in Massachusetts. Tom Wolf, a Democrat, has been elected in Pennsylvania as governor. Gina Raimondo, a Democrat, has been elected in Rhode Island. And Bill Lee, a Republican, has won in Tennessee. A close race in Virginia's 7th Congressional District. Republican David Bratt leads Democrat Abigail Spencer by a 1% margin with 62% of the votes in Close rate in Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. Republican Scott Taylor leads Democrat Elaine Luria by a 2.86% margin. A recent Gallup poll released November 2nd found that 74% of Democrats and 84% of Republicans listed immigration as extremely or very important for their vote for Congress this year. We're joined now by uh, Dr. Greg Carr. He's chair of the African American Studies Department at Howard University. Thank you for being with us. Oh, brother, it's always good to be here, uh, Baba Skia, and I'm um, glad to be here. Katia sent the note out and said, get here. I said, okay, I'm here. <laughs> so <laughs> this and is an exciting night, brother. Ernesto Arche can't be here, but he's with us. Yes. I'm, I'm here in spirit. I'm there in spirit. So. Uh, Live in Los Angeles. Indeed. Um, Dr. Carr. Um, yes. Tell us about uh, uh, your travels and uh, your uh, what you've seen looking into this as that African Americans uh, feel connected to this is this uh, election it, it's certainly necessary but is this going to be sufficient well I mean the jury is out isn't it um, <laughs> the lawyers are out there right now litigating uh, filing lawsuits even as we speak uh, Kristen Clark and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights are hard at work on the ground they've received over 25,000 calls reporting voting irregularities and this kind of thing by 5 o'clock today. But what we do know uh, is that the numbers of uh, early voters is unprecedented. Um, we are talking about numbers for a midterm election that could be the highest in terms of percentage of eligible to vote in decades. And what we're seeing that translate into really is very interesting, both at the federal level and at the local level. You know, all the, the, the mainstream, so-called mainstream media is focusing on these horse races in the uh, United States Congress and Senate. Uh, the governorships as well, particularly in uh, Maryland, Florida, and Georgia. But when we look across the board, we're talking, and, and you've just... Uh, I mean, you just reported on several of them, but um, it's very interesting to note that you've got potential for a black attorney general in Minnesota. Uh, you've got the potential for another attorney general in Illinois. I just came back from one of your old stomping grand Chicago. They're very excited out there. Um, but one other thing I mentioned in terms of these voting irregularities, you've got Brian Kemp, who is behaving in the best tradition of folks like Lester Maddox and Governor Talmadge and some of these other white supremacists from Georgia gubernatorial history literally uh, st staffing voting polls in Georgia with machines with no cords. With uh, It's like, are you serious? One voting, two voting machines in North Dakota, our Native American kin. I'm thinking about Jay Wood and Nightwolf when I realize the fact that they're saying that your ID says Avenue instead of street, so you can't vote. But they're sitting at the polls. The Native Americans are with their machines making new IDs. I guess what we're seeing finally, Askia, is people in around this country are fighting back. Uh, they're fighting back, and they're doing it in a way that will, if not be a total victory tonight, because we know voting isn't a total victory. Voting is a way to participate. Certainly portends well for what uh, what, what this country will look like going forward. And uh, Greg Carr, this is Ernesto Arce, yes. uh, KPFK News in Los Angeles. We're getting a couple of reports from Georgia that I'd like you to weigh in. One of them is, according to reports from Google, trends are showing uh, uh, 
searches are revealing real problems of long waiting lines in Georgia, and that coincides with reports of high voter turnout. And then a little bit of good news from Telesur. Uh, Georgia, the Georgia NAACP just won a lawsuit to extend voting times three hours in Spelman and Morehouse districts. That's exactly right. And they'll now close at 10 p.m. per court orders. So that's that's, right. that's some good news, right? That should alleviate some of the problems that they're having there. Well, it certainly, hopefully, it can create what uh, Congressman John Lewis likes to call good problems. Because if you're in line, you get to vote. So uh, those under the sound of our voice who are listening online, who are in Georgia, who are in those two districts that have been extended in, in, in the Atlanta University Center area around Morehouse and Spelman's campus, go get in line. Go get in line. The, and, and it's a beautiful testament to the intellectual work of the lawyers around this country who are simply not going to concede. They have pushed back on Brian Kemp every step of the way, and they've been able to fight him to a standstill on some of these things. So, no, it's very encouraging because what it's really speaking to is the power of people if they participate to alter, alter the course of events. Our next field report tonight is from Ben Max in New York where progressive Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez made waves when she beat incumbent Democrat Joseph Crowley. Ben Max is editor of the Gotham, Gotham Gazette and host of Max and Murphy on Pacifica's WBAI in New York City. Ben? Good evening. Evening. How are you? So, so what's it like in the Apple? Well, um, there's sort of a mix of ho-hum and some, some interesting races here uh, right at the close of polls a couple of minutes ago, uh, one of our local stations that does exit polling here uh, already announced that Governor Andrew Cuomo has won another term and that Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has also won another term. So those were sort of blowouts fairly expected. But then there's a variety of House seats here in New York that could contribute to you know whatever the outcome is across the country that people are still waiting now to see what the results are. So there's a lot of anticipation on those. And, ho hum. Uh, you and, say and ho hum, <laughs> ho hum. Even about even about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, ho hum. Uh, yawn, yawn. No, I mean w with her, the the you know the general election is a bit of a formality here. Um, you know the the real excitement about her primary win in June pretty much paved the way for her to walk in the general election, but. You know, you don't take anything for granted, and of course, she, you know, still had to make sure she gets the votes, and we'll see those results come in tonight, and and then there'll be probably a renewed round of excitement about her definitively heading to Congress. I he I heard something very interesting. This is Ernesto Arce at KPFK in Los Angeles, a Pacifica station out here in the West. Um, that the Republican Party actually pulled. Uh, all of their support for her challenger as a result of um, some domestic violence issues that came up. Yes, that was, um, you know, there there had been some controversy around him uh, early on, and then uh, even more allegations came forward, and, and basically everybody sort of walked away from him. And so, as you say, it's basically a formality. Is that, um, you know, getting people excited in, in Manhattan and uh you know, the Bronx and, and, you know, all these areas where, where she's pulled a lot of support from. Yeah, well, she'll represent a district that's largely Queens and some of the Bronx. And, Queens. Yeah. Um, there, there's definitely some excitement. Uh, her race really hasn't been much of a focus for the general election. I mean, as I said, I think there will be a renewed round of attention on her now that she's officially, a, you know, a Congress person-elect uh, after tonight. Uh, but, you know, the... The real races that people are watching in New York are in more of the swing districts um, where, you know, her, her race was much more focused on the primary, where it was a shocking upset of obviously a top-ranking Democratic official and a longtime New York representative in Joe Crowley. And now, you know, even her attention, she's been, she's been working to help flip some of the other seats that, are, that have been in Republican control in New York. How do you think she's dealt with the controversy or maybe the fallout in regards to her answers about Medicare for all. I know that that's been a big trending topic where they say, hey, how are we going to pay for Medicare for all? Well, we just are. Right. Her answer, you know, she, I believe. She's had some different answers on that. One of the one of the answers, you know, that she gives, I think that's a little bit stronger is, is something along the lines of, you know, we always have more money for the military and for war. Why can't we, uh, you know, dedicate more money to, to health care? And, and that often um, you know, leads to the silencing of some some additional questions. Um, you know, she uh, in in the New York area, um, 
you know, she has been, uh, I think, of less interest in the last couple months. You know, she also, even nationally, she made a big round of media appearances after her primary upset that, la- you know, that lasted certainly throughout the summer because that, that race occurred in June. Uh, she made a bunch of media appearances, and she certainly started to become uh, a, a very wanted guest at some rallies around the country where pro- they were trying to whip up progressives who were excited about her win. Um, but certainly of late, um, she's been flying a little bit more under the radar, but I'm sure that either in the lead-up to January or, or after the new year when she takes her seat, she'll be more of a focus. Ben Max, editor of the Gotham Gazette and host of Max and Murphy on Pacifica's WBAI in New York City. Thank you for being with us. No problem. Thanks, Ben. So, yes, we're coming in now. Um, our next few report tonight, uh, joining us, in fact, to focus on social justice themes running through the election are Alicia Garza, an Oakland-based organizer, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and Dr. Ron Daniels, executive director of the National Rainbow Coalition in 1987 and a deputy campaign manager for Jesse Jackson for president. Uh, welcome. Welcome, both of you. Hi, thank you. Wonderful. Good to be here. I'm president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century. That's my current iteration. And a radio talk show host on the sister station, WBAI. Indeed. Vantage Point. Yes, indeed. Right. That's right, Dr. Daniels. Monday nights. <laughs> no question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very good to hear both of you, of course, uh, two major figures, and to have this intergenerational conversation about what's going on tonight. Um, we've seen more black candidates in this election than in, in a long time, maybe perhaps you know, even ever. At the same time, it, there's intense voter suppression. We've been talking about it over the last several hours. Themes and acts of racism are playing out. How, how do you see what's unfolding tonight, and, and what does it really portend for the future? Um, Alicia, if you want to take it first, and then perhaps, Dr. Daniel, you can, can bring up and put some context in it. Sure. Well, what I'm seeing is that women, women of color and black women specifically, are really playing a key role in elections all over the country. I'm here in Georgia tonight, and we had 450 domestic workers, many of them black, knocking doors across the state for Stacey Abrams to our political arm, uh, Care in Action. And so that is something that's incredibly exciting, and I think we'll see that this will continue to be a trend moving through 2020 and beyond. However, I think we should just be mindful of two very important things. While women, women of color, and black women are an incredible political force to be reckoned with, we still, of course, have to take into account that the major parties that we're engaged with are still not doing their part to invest and engage in the very women who are the engine of this democracy. And so that's something we should pay attention to. The other thing that we certainly need to pay attention to here is the egregious uh, both legacy and current situation of voter suppression. So I'm just coming back from doing a full day of poll watching. I'm just coming back from a poll in uh, Fulton County where there was a line inside of the polling place that had been there since it opened that literally wrapped around the inside of the building more than two times. There are seniors, there are veterans, there are mothers with children many of them young, who are waiting, and many of them black, who are waiting to vote as we speak. As we know, the um, NAACP was able to get an injunction tonight to help keep the polls open. While I was there, they extended the poll uh, until 9 o'clock. But certainly by that time, a lot of people who are waiting to vote had already left. Um, There's a lot of confusion in there. And most of these polling places that are experiencing this kind of deep disinvestment, whether it be not having enough poll workers or there being confusion about whether or not the polls can stay open. These are happening in places that are majority black, majority low income or poor. And so while every single person that I have talked to while I've been here in Georgia uh, has said that they want to vote, that they are planning to vote, that they are going to vote no matter what, um, we see that the, you know, the candidate for governor, who is also the Secretary of State, is not only making the rules, but he's breaking the rules. And so, of course, these are big factors that are impacting the ability of black people and black communities specifically to be able to exercise and build political power. And that is a huge concern for our future. Dr. Daniels, you have uh, 
a lot of experience dealing with members of the Congressional Black Caucus and the black leadership class, some call the black misleadership class. There is a whole influx of new members of the Congressional Black Caucus, a Somali woman in Minnesota, uh, uh, Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts. Uh, there's a black woman, I think, that's going to uh, join the Congressional Black Caucus in Connecticut. Some of these races are, are, are not talked about so much, but will, there, will this new influx of new blood uh, invigorate uh, what's sometimes seen as a feckless Congressional Black Caucus? Well, it, it, that remains to be seen. Let me just first of all say that this situation in Georgia is the classical fox watching the hen house. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the kind of thing you take to the United Nations. The, the, the idea that you could have the Secretary of State be the one who is overseeing the, and a candidate overseeing the election apparatus, and then he launches this false complaint at the end. But even beyond that, I mean, just literally thousands of people who are who are who have been kept off the rolls. I mean, that is, you talk about depressing. It's not only voter suppression; it is depressing, you know, within the context of what is supposed to be a democracy, you know. So I, I just had to comment on that, and we'll see whether or not, you know, in spite of all that, uh, Stacey Abrams will, Abrams will be able to overcome that. But that's a steep challenge to overcome, uh, despite the fact that I think she's waged an absolutely brilliant uh, campaign. Um, the Congressional Black Caucus, I mean, there are a number of members of the Congressional Black Caucus who are out here campaigning for some of the very new candidates that you're talking about coming into the into the fold. Um, so it remains to be seen whether the Congressional Black Caucus will be more invigorated, more bold, and whatever. I think the bigger question is the one that Alisa mentioned earlier. Uh, it, I want to see the degree to which actually on the ground uh, the Democratic Party and its affiliates really invested in uh, the Democratic ground game, the ground game of people working to try to get the vote out. Uh, I'm a little concerned about the messaging. Do I think health care is an important message to get out? And I'm not at all disputing that. It seems to me that there ought to be a way in which you also deal with this uh, issue, as well as then specific issues related to uh, you know, the question of criminal justice policy reform and the issue of, of the lack of jobs, no matter what this economy is doing. The hard reality is that, uh, you know, black people are still significantly, you know, not only unemployed, but in jobless. I mean, people who have actually just given up on the idea of working. So I think these are some of the big picture issues. And clearly, tonight is not a blue wave by any stretch of the imagination. And in Florida, you know, if in fact, uh, as it looks now, it looks like if, in, if at all uh, Gillum or um, uh, Nelson squeak through, uh, it will be because of the black folks and young people who are voting in in, um, in Dade County and in uh, Broward County. Uh, but it really does show, you know, the the kind of uh, the, the the power of of Trump with these uh, these white racist voters. And I think the other thing that we have to keep pointing out, no matter what happens tonight, there's still an issue, and and the whole voter suppression thing does not help it that the, the vast majority of people, despite all this excitement, still did not vote. I mean, the biggest deal in America is the so-called democracy is non-voters. I mean, most white people will not have voted tonight. Most, many black people will not have voted uh, tonight because it is not a, a climate conducive and encouraging for black people. Now, the one perhaps shock might well be in Texas where uh, Beto O'Rourke is, may actually pull this off. And if he does, it will be because of young people, women, as uh, Alicia has pointed out, uh, uh, students, or, you know, that energy may well pull off, uh, you know, a, a big upset uh, in the state of Texas. Ernesto. Well, I, I had a question for you. Uh, you mentioned the issue of unin the unemployed and how such a big impact that that has on our communities. The one thing that surprised me when I started doing uh, field reporting here at KPFK Pacifica's radio station in, in Southern California was that there was the unemployment rate and then there was what they called the chronic unemployment rate, which is not even factored into the employment rate. Maybe right. for our national audience, help us understand this issue of the chronically unemployed. Those people that, as you mentioned, have stopped looking for jobs. They've just given up on the prospect of ever working uh, being part of the labor force that that are just no longer employable. 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the unemployment rate is among those who are still looking for work. Uh, the jobless rate is, and that's the chronically unemployed are people who, who simply have just thrown up their hands and have given up, and they, they just, just don't feel that it's possible. But beyond that, then you're also looking at the question of what jobs are there, you know? I mean, that's why campaigning on issues like the working wage and a number of other things become critically important, because... You know, to the degree that people are working, some of them are working two, three, two and three jobs just to make one decent uh, uh, living. But for black people, you know, there's still, you know, serious, 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 what I call state of emergency, that is, in spite of all the Wall Street stuff, the stock market. Black people ain't on the stock market. We're not into, you know, this, this, you know, this uh, so-called expansive uh, stock market. And, in fact, what has happened with this most recent tax relief, tax reform, is they're trying to starve social programs. So the next move will be to say, oh, well, we can't do anything. There's this, this deficit. The deficit that they were hawks on for many years. What was the main thing? The, de- the Republicans ran on the debt and the deficit. Now they've exploded the debt and the deficit, and they're not complaining at all because they have, in fact, gotten their share. Uh, and then they will turn around and say that those things that benefit working people Across the board, there are no dollars available for that now. So it is, it's, it's an interesting place that we're in as we wake up tomorrow morning to see the Democrats probably will uh, retain the control, will gain control of the House of Representatives narrowly. Uh, no chance, it seems, for the, uh, the Senate at all. But there's still a question of what will this victory actually mean. And I think the real question is that those persons, brothers and sisters and, and allies who have been organizing on the ground, will still have to find vehicles for continuing that organizing, both impacting the Democratic Party, but also creating independent vehicles in order to build a much more participatory, much more visionary and courageous kind of political operation. Thanks for that answer, Ron. If we can add uh, or have Alicia Garza join the the discussion, you know, Ron was talking about, uh, you know, just how the large army of unemployed and jobless people uh, impact our communities. I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, an, another big issue here in uh, in California um, is, uh, you know, people having to work two and three jobs just to make ends meet. Uh, what can you tell us about um, uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, service sector workers, we know that that's the, the largest, the most growing industry in the United States. Jobs that don't pay a living wage, jobs which, you know, force you to work two or three jobs just to pay rent. Um, you know, I, I know that groups like Black Lives Matter, which you are a member of and, and, and an organizer with, uh, have actually joined the labor struggle. I know that that happened here in Southern California. Uh, you know, what, what can you say about the, about these issues of, of um, you know, grassroots community organizations actually teaming up with labor to say, hey, our families are suffering. Uh, you, you need to feel our pain. Let's let's join together with 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 labor, with, uh, you know, people who are who are paid very low and with with that growing army of jobless? Mm -hmm. Well, let me say this. I think the first thing that's important to understand about the service economy, particularly in the way that it is the largest, uh, the fastest growing uh, sector in our economy, is that it is largely uh, comprised of women of color. And so what we're seeing then is that um, this is not just impacting individuals, it's also impacting families. And so when we look at um, what it means to kind of bring different movements together, whether that be Black Lives Matter and the labor movement, I think we also need to just be clear that um, I think what people are starting to realize is that we're, we're not able to, to, we don't have the luxury, right, of fighting single-issue struggles. And I do think that this is one of the major challenges, again, that we're facing with the political system and the kind of uh, arrangement of how politics are moving in today's society, uh, particularly in, you know, in relationship to the parties. And there's a mismatch here in terms of message where we're talking about um, issues as if they don't relate to one another, when for everyday people, they're all intertwined, being housing insecure, uh, having to work two and three jobs, having to work in a sector where you have very little to no labor protections, and having to be responsible for taking care of not just yourself but other family members um, is an incredibly uh, tenuous situation to be in. 
And I can say that if we understand the service economy as being the largest growing sector of our economy, then we have to also understand that there are more and more people who are being trapped in that downward spiral. And this is why it's important when we talk about kind of some of the things that the GOP is trying to move and are, are successful in moving in terms of weakening protections for workers, uh, whittling down people's ability to be able to organize as workers and, and, and uh, advance collective demands on behalf of workers with employers. I think the, the expansion as well of the gig economy um, and technology where people are being misclassified um, in their jobs and as, with the labor that they're doing creates more insecurity uh, for much more people in the economy. So for us, for example, with domestic workers, uh, you're seeing an increase uh, on technology platforms of uh, apps that are kind of advertising cleaning services, but those workers don't have any protections. One, because they're being classified as independent contractors, misclassified, and two, because the gig economy is still largely unregulated. And so you have workers going from uh, uh, an economy that is already largely uh, unregulated as it relates to care work and service work. And then you're seeing expanding sectors of the economy that have even less regulation. And so people, again, are being trapped in the cycle of having to go to extreme measures to make basic ends meet. And it's not possible for many people in this economy to even access the American dream uh, or whatever, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. And so that is something that we need to be paying attention to, not just in the midterm elections, but moving forward into 2020. These are issues that need to be lifted up, but they need to be lifted up in ways that they relate to the people who are experiencing them every day. Let me, let, me, let me say just quickly on that, that there's sometimes a disconnect between the inside and the outside. For example, the Congressional Black Caucus has a bill that they have put forth. It's called the Jobs and Justice Bill. That's a fairly comprehensive, not fairly, it's a very comprehensive bill related with dealing with jobs and criminal justice reform, all kinds of issues. But, you know, I dare say many movement organizations know nothing about it. And so, and I also would say that on many of the issues that Alicia raises, that, you know, in, if you take a broad view between the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, we tactically support the Democrats because on virtually every one of those issues, uh, Democrats of all stripes pretty much, you know, are, are trying to deal with, you know, uh, living wage issues, issues of extending, you know, health care and a range of other, uh, of other issues. But what we've got to find a way to do, and uh, we certainly have raised this issue because we've been in Institute of the Black World 21st Century pushing the whole concept of a Marshall Plan, a number of other things. But we want to do it in a movement way. We want to, we want to make sure that that grassroots organizations, community-based organizations, and people in the community are engaged in that process because it doesn't do any good, really, for a piece of legislation to be introduced in the Congress of the United States if people don't know about it. And by and large, most people don't know a lot of what the Congressional Black Caucus is actually trying to do, and the and the Progressive Caucus, the Latino Caucus, the Asian Caucus. Many of these caucuses, you know, are bulwarks against you know the most um, uh, hideous and dangerous aspects of this right-wing retrograde agenda, and are putting forth some, some ideas that really require really a movement strategy as opposed to an inside strategy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, point, Ron Daniels. Um, you know, the, the talk about the gig economy is something that's um, that's very pervasive here in California as um, uh, Uber and Lyft drivers uh, take meaningful work away from from taxi drivers or rather not meaningful work but you know the bread and butter of a lot of taxi drivers has been uh, uh, stripped away as a result of uber and lyft uh, airbnb has been accused here in southern california of um uh, reducing the number of uh, housing units that's available in the housing stock which in turn drives up the rents so there's um and there's a lot of local legislation from uh, municipal city councils to the state legislature here in California that are addressing those issues. And as they say, uh, as goes California, goes the rest of the nation. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, some of these uh, some of these pieces of legislation in California actually become adopted across the nation as people, um, you know, fight for, uh, you know, 
things that, that can be more affordable, um, you know, in, in terms of the taxi drivers fighting for their uh, their welfare and their well-being, uh, it'll be interesting to see. Thank you so much, uh, Ron Daniels and Alicia Garza. I think we, um, Eskiel. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And uh, our Ernesto Arche in Los yes. Angeles, California. I'm Oski and Muhammad with Gregory Carr here in, Los, in Washington, D.C., We'll be hearing more conversation in just a moment with Phyllis Bennis. But first, we're going to hear from Sharon and the Dap Kings. This land is uh, made for you and me. headlines at uh, this time. Democrats have picked up three House seats. Republicans have defended at least six competitive seats. The three Democratic victories have been Jennifer Wexton in Virginia's 10th District, Donna Shalala in Florida's 27th District, and Dwight Evans in Pennsylvania's 3rd District. In the critical Texas Senate race, Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz are tied in that race, with NBC and CNN estimating 58 percent of the precincts have now reported. BBC is reporting that Rhode Island gubernatorial race Gina Raimondo, a Democrat, is leading by 14.2% with 93% of the votes counted. And uh, ABC News and NBC are projecting that Democrat Joe Manchin will win the Senate rate in West Virginia. CNN is reporting with 61% of the votes reporting. Manchin leads Patrick Morrissey by 4.6% margin. That race had been considered a, a likely or possible uh, turnover for the Republicans uh, in that state of North, of West Virginia. North Virginia, West Virginia, <laughs> West Virginia, and West Virginia. Um, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He is a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of many books, including The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, published earlier this year. He spoke to us earlier about what this election means. Dr. Gerald Horn, the election today has really been considered too close to call. How do things look from your perspective? What are you seeing in election 2018? Well, I find it quite concerning that as we speak today on November 6th, that the election is too close to call in light of the capture of the Republican Party, one of the two major parties, by a man who was widely described as a neo-fascist. Speaking of Donald J. Trump, it, that is not reassuring. Which brings me to the second point, which is that the Republican Party platform and campaign conducted by Mr. Trump, as most commentators and pundits suggested, was all about inducing fear on the part of the Republican Party base, using blatant racist appeals. The question that the commentators and pundits rarely ask is, why do racist appeals resonate with the Trump base, which as of November 2016 consisted of 63 million voters? That's a question that we all must ponder. And then finally, with regard to the campaign, I find it quite interesting that despite the hubbub and the hullabaloo about the so-called tax cuts of December 2017, that's hardly been an issue in terms of the Republican campaign. And likewise, despite the fact that our Democratic friends, Democratic Party friends, have made such a hullabaloo about this so-called Russiagate issue, why hasn't that been front and center in terms of their campaign? What does that tell us? 
those are some of my preliminary points as of November 6, 2018. When you mention fear and the possibility that fear may prevail in the minds of a majority of the electorate in certain key races, what should the potential victims do if the red wave prevails? Well, I think there are a number of options. Uh, one is the obvious option, which is heightening our activism. Uh, secondly, it's prevailing upon some of the traditional civil rights community to rethink the strategies that obviously have led us to the brink of catastrophe. A third, it seems to me that all of our organizations should be reaching out across the oceans and across the borders trying to make allies. I mean, for example, uh, just recently, uh, President Erdogan of Turkey came to New York for the United Nations session where he met with the daughters of Malcolm X. And then that took place in the aftermath of Turkey renaming the street on which the U.S. Embassy in Ankara is sited, naming the boulevard after Malcolm X. Now, that is obviously an overture that Turkey is making to black America, uh, this uh, obviously could be quite helpful as we press our campaign against police terror at the highest councils of the United Nations Human Rights Council. But once again, if history is any guide, these will prove to be lost opportunities, I'm afraid. Finally, suppose there's a blue wave. How should the liberal and progressive forces celebrate? Well, hopefully, if there is such a wave, we should try to build upon it. We should analyze the figures. Uh, we should see if history has been a reliable instructor. And, for example, if there is a blue wave, one could well expect nine out of ten black voters to have participated in that blue wave, with a disproportionate number of black women participating in that wave, if that proves to be the case, we should be thinking about the next election and obviously trying to run more black women in particular for the highest offices in the land. And that brings us to the gubernatorial race in Georgia. And one of the races that we surely will be paying attention to is the attempt by Stacey Abrams to become the first black woman governor, not only in Georgia, but in the entire USA. Dr. Gerald Horn, Professor of History and African American Studies, thank you for talking with us. Thank you for inviting me. And now we turn to international implications of this election. Phyllis Bennis is the director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on the Middle East, U.S. wars, and U.N. issues. She is also a fellow at the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. In 2001, she helped found and remains active with the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Welcome. Thank you for being with us, Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis, are you, are you with us, Phyllis? Oh, we're so anxious to have Phyllis Bennis. Hello. Hi, hi Phyllis. Hey, Thank you for being with us. Yes. Great to be with you. It's crazy so, night. We, <laughs> yes. we just heard um, uh, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn suggest that... Uh, Voters, particularly the liberal, the left, the progressive forces, if the, whether there's a win or a loss, ought to consider international alliances. Is that possible, or would that um, raise, raise the questions of uh, patriotism and all kinds of other right-wing conspiracies if, if uh, people on, in the progressive movement uh, reached out and formed alliances with similar groups in other countries? Well, first of all, I think that it's very important that progressives and the left in general not base our strategic decisions on whether we're going to face pushback from the right wing in our own country. Certainly we will. That's not the answer to whether it's a good or a bad thing to do. It has, it's something to be taken into account, of course. But yes, I think Gerald is absolutely right. We need desperately uh, international connections. Internationalism is something that for my generation, your generation, Askia, I'm not sure about the other two with you, uh, we grew up in a I'm much era. younger. 
And so, so is Dr. Sorry, that, Ernesto Arce of KPFK in Los Angeles. <laughs> yes, indeed. But we were the lucky ones. We grew up in the era when being political at all put you in the midst of international struggle. The war in Vietnam and then the wars that followed, those were the central aspects of how the U.S. operated around the world. So that if you were progressive, it was the combination of civil rights and the war in Vietnam. It was war and racism were the the two pillars of U.S. power, and fighting the two of them together was a necessity from the beginning. I think it's much harder for people who have grown up, for example, since the end of the Cold War, one of the big differences, and this goes, of course, to whoever is in power, whichever party is in power, it's not affected by elections. We have to recognize that for a long time we fought against wars and we fought in solidarity with people and in support of people who were fighting to change their own country, whether it was in South Africa in the, the fight against apartheid. We didn't just call for end U.S. support for apartheid. We said support the ANC. In Vietnam, for some of us, it certainly wasn't the whole movement, but we said from the beginning that this is not just about U.S. troops out. This is about we support the NLF. We supported the, quote, other side. And that put us in the middle of internationalism. We understood the world from that vantage point. And I think thinking about that today is much more difficult, not least because the wars themselves are different. In, in general, nowhere in the world is there, in, in my view, uh, an opponent who is militarily challenging the U.S. who is representing an organization we would want to support. They're mostly terrible right-wing uh, religious reactionary organizations that we wouldn't support. It's one thing to say that any any country's people have the right to fight back against a foreign invader or a foreign occupier. That doesn't mean we support what they stand for. So it's a very different world out there, and internationalism is hard. But Gerald is absolutely right that especially at this moment when what we're seeing now is a kind of axis of authoritarians, uh, we're seeing these links with Trump giving a kind of, not just a, a credential or an imprimatur, but really guaranteeing support and impunity for these, in, you know, really fascist and neo-fascist authoritarian leaders that are rising up in places like Hungary and now Brazil. Uh, certainly, we're, we've been seeing it for a long time in the Middle East, whether in Israel or in the, uh, in, in the Gulf monarchies. But what about in the Philippines? In the Philippines it's, yeah. it's rampant. And this is, you know, they are coming together globally for all that they claim to be nationalists and putting their own countries first. They are engaging with each other, learning from each other, holding up each other. That's what we should be doing. And we do it, but not enough. We don't do it enough. We should do it more. Um, let's ask you, particularly given the fact that a uh, recent article in Harper's Magazine, the latest Harper's, that um, the writer argues that, or makes the, the, the he speculates that by 2040, 70% um, of the American population will live in 15 states. And um, as we've been hearing uh, from Ernesto, you know, as, go, as, go, as goes California, in many ways goes the country. You know, what, what are the prospects on the international uh, front for individual states in this country that are much more progressive uh, to reach out. I'm thinking about, of course, the states that have signed on to the Paris Accord, uh, mm -hmm. trade. I mean, what what do you see emerging as this country probably begins to fracture, maybe even beyond repair in terms of that question of federalism and states? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a really complicated one because in this country, so much of the the weakness of our democracy, the the insufficiency of our democracy, the failures of our democracy, are bound up with how the state-federal relationship was crafted from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it was crafted to give priority to, uh, to the Senate over the House, where population doesn't matter, but territory matters. And the, you know, all of the things that have stemmed from that, the creation of the uh, electoral Congress, uh, the Electoral Council, that you know, chooses presidents in this country who are not democratically elected, who are not elected by the majority of the population. All of that has to do with the, the, the relationship between each state
government. All of that right now is in flux in a certain way, and, and we see in, in a number of ways. We've been seeing it particularly in the last two years, I would say, that Trump has been in power uh, as the, the failure of the Trump administration to win electoral, uh, sorry, to win uh, uh, legislative victories in, in the Congress was matched or was answered by these dictatorial announcements changing policy by fiat, whether it was the Muslim ban, whether it was uh, separating children from their families at the border, all of these things, most of them centered around the question of immigration. Fundamentally, the question of racism became the central component of all of this. Uh, and in that context, we have to look at the, uh, the, the reality that what's happened is that in a number of states and many, many cities, the local and state governments took on the task of challenging if not the power, but the, at least the decisions made by that power in mm. Washington. Mm-hmm. So the creation of sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the question of uh, em- embracing the, uh, the Paris climate deal and saying we'll even go beyond that. And then you have trade relations in, in many countries, uh, sorry, in many states with many other countries, because so much of the, the uh, economy of the U.S. I mean, if you look at California alone, would be the fifth largest economy in the world. That's crazy on yes. a certain level. Yes. Uh, but it, it's a reflection of the vast disparities between states in this country. Ernesto? Yes, I'm here. Uh, you have a big uh, border. You're almost uh, ha- uh, with the southern, the southern border with uh, uh, Mexico uh, is almost like your northern... Mexico as opposed to Baja, California. Um, do those inter- international issues adjust or influence the uh, politics in Southern California and throughout California? I, I think most certainly there was uh, an accusation from some so-called nativists and Republicans here in Southern California that uh, Mexican-American and Mexican voters were more interested in voting in the Mexican election for Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador than they were in their very own elections. <laughs> yes. That proved that, uh, you know, they're they're regressive and they don't really love this country. And, you know, the, 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 the typical um, arguments about the America-hating left uh, uh, kind of rose up after, after, um, after that recent election. But, you know, I, I think... We're, we're tied together in so many ways. Uh, what, what happens in Mexico has a huge impact um, uh, among the, uh, the Mexican-American, Chicano, the Latino uh, population here in California. And so I think people were very, uh, very excited to see um, someone like AMLO, you know, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who uh, just won his election this, this past uh, July. Um, people were very excited to see a progressive. I mean, very similar to the to the Bernie Sanders campaign that um, galvanized a lot of people here in California, a lot of especially young people of color that said, "Hey, you know, if um, uh, you know, we we've got a great candidate uh, here in the United States. Um, you know, Mexico's got a great candidate. You know, there is a." momentum for a progressive wave in which we see uh, social justice issues as things that we really need to fight for, you know, uh, uh, living wages and, and, and immigrant rights. Um, so many of these issues have become, uh, I think the, the, um, the term that people are using nowadays is interconnected, um, uh, you know, issues that uh, are, are very closely related. And so, you know, what happens in, you know, just south of the border has a really big impact and um, can impress upon people very deeply, you know, that we are all part of the same struggle and that there is, as uh, Phyllis Bennis just mentioned, you know, the, that spirit of internationalism, you know, where we uh, celebrate the victories uh, of progressive candidates in Mexico and we, uh, you know, we mourn the losses in Brazil and Germany and the Philippines and, and say, you know, we there there is a, a chance that um, uh, the influence that um, whether it be Filipino Americans have uh, here to back in the homeland, the influence that Mexican Americans have here to those back in Mexico uh, is, is big and it can't be understated. Phyllis. Uh, okay. Um, I think we lost Phyllis, maybe. Uh, and we lost Phyllis. Well, we, I mean, we have a very, uh, a really critical question for, for Phyllis because, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, people, uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, Ernesto being accused of, of uh, 
of anti-Americanism anti -Americanism and uh, having a dual loyalties or a higher loyalty to Mexico than to the United States. This is something that could never be said, although it's frequently been said, uh, whispered, you might say, about Israel, that uh, uh, Jews in America are single-minded about Israel and that they're more concerned about Israel than the United States. Uh, is that a possibility? I wonder, Phyllis Bennis, uh, Phyllis, uh, um, Ernesto mentioned that uh, that uh, uh, Mexican-Americans are being accused of having uh, loyalty split and greater loyalty for Mexico than for the United States. You, couldn't, you could never say that about uh, Jews, although it's been said, uh, always uh, rebunked and beaten back. Um, is it possible that uh, the new Congress with new members might be able to bring the BDS movement back to life? As a, for example, Phyllis. Yes. Uh, can, is, can is is can BDS have a new life? You mentioned Israel. Uh, can BDS have a life in the new Congress? I think it's a mistake to look to Congress to lead. Congress will follow when our movements are strong enough that they have no choice. Mm. BDS is one of the strongest components of the international movements in our country at the moment. So it is helping to change the discourse. We see things in Congress like Representative Betty McCollum's uh, resolution, the first one ever really put on the table to defend Palestinian children from the horrific Israeli uh, military juvenile detention system. It's the only country in the world that has a juvenile justice system, as they call it, run by the military for children as young as 12. And her bill, which is it's a very mild bill. It basically just says, let's be sure that none of our aid money is used to fund it, to fund that horrific project. It still explains how bad the project is, exposes the reality of what U.S. military aid to Israel does. It's not directly linked to BDS, but it's a reflection of the degree to which there's been this massive change in public discourse on Israel-Palestine, uh, which is much more dramatic in the public arena, certainly in the Jewish community, even in the press, although not as much as in the public, and even a little bit in the Congress. We're seeing things like two years ago, three years ago now, when we saw 60 members of Congress skip the speech when Bibi Netanyahu came to speak at a joint session of Congress to convince them to vote against Obama on the Iran nuclear deal. 60 members of Congress. That was unprecedented. And the sky didn't fall. Dear Mr. Mann, Prince, and then the audio essay. Wonderful. So, and we also got some uh, information that's just come in about Rashida Tlaib, who is the uh, Democratic candidate for Michigan's 13th congressional district, and yeah. they are now calling her the first uh, Muslim woman <laughs> who is headed to Congress. And she's Palestinian American woman. Palestinian -American, also American, right. And she, she's racing with the uh, uh, the woman in uh, succeeding uh, John Conyers to be Bill the first Omar. Muslim woman. So we'll have two new Muslim women in Congress, which is a exactly. really and one is the of. first Palestinian woman, the other is the first refugee and a Somali. Wow, a Somali woman who came to this country as a refugee and is now about to go into Congress. It's, that's extraordinary. Absolutely, absolutely. One question, Phyllis, I had about the BDS. Uh, for those listeners that aren't familiar with the the acronym, it's mm. the Boycott Divestment Sanctions of Israel. Um, that's been really started by uh, Muslim American Palestinian uh, rights and, and many youth groups. Um, you know, you mentioned that 60 members of Congress, that's, uh, you know, absolutely unprecedented that, that walked out of uh, Netanyahu's uh, speech. Um, is this, you know, you, you made a really good point about, you know, not to look to Congress. Uh, can we credit um, social justice movements for, um, for, you know, for that new take on Israel-Palestine? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is something that many of us have been working on for 25, 30 years now. And the last several years, we've seen a, a more rapid shift than ever before. You see it in the press coverage. You know, you hear the word, for example, the Nakba, the Arabic for the catastrophe, which is what Palestinians call the massive dispossession that when 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their land at the time of Israel's creation. Uh, you see that word in the New York Times all the time. You know, you see Palestinian analysts on NPR and on um, mainstream media, the organization, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, whose 
sole job is to put Palestinian voices and pro-Palestinian analysis supporting Palestinian rights into the mainstream media, they now have a staff of, I don't know, I think it's about 15 or 18 people. They started with one struggling woman trying to, to figure out if she could do this work, and suddenly they can't keep up wow. because there's so much interest in it. It's, yeah. it's changed absolutely dramatically. On the other hand, the policy, as we know, particularly this last two years, has gotten worse, not better. So we certainly cannot be complacent. But it has been the work of social movements, certainly the Palestinian rights movement, but others as well. The fact, the, the 60 members of Congress who skipped the speech, much as I would like to you know, say that it was all because they understood the, the importance of Palestinian rights, for many of these members, many of them were from the Black Caucus, and they were responding less to the question of Palestinian rights than they were to the horrors of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's racism towards President Obama. A absolutely. Phyllis, Phyllis Bennis, thank you. We're, we're, we're grateful for you. Uh, we appreciate all your uh, that you've shared with us, all your wisdom, all your brilliance, and uh, <laughs> we're grateful. Uh, uh, what is it they say on Capitol Hill? Everything has already been said. Everybody just hasn't said it yet, so uh, we want to say something. We want we want to say something. We want to say some of our stuff as well. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's thank been a pleasure. You, thank you. Phyllis Bennis is a uh, a um, fellow at the international at the Institute for Policy Studies and other places, and the, uh, a scholar and one of uh, a great wisdom on international subjects, uh, Dr. Carr. Very quickly, I'm, I'm glad to spend an hour with you, Babaskia, uh, and also um, Ernesto. So it's, it's it's good to have you on this. And uh, as, as we prepare to hear our dear ancestor Prince, it, it, we see now Florida is very close. Uh, Brian Kemp, this white supremacist, has uh, looks like he's really working hard to steal that election in Georgia. All they're going to do is ruin this uh, white supremacy settler state called the United States. And I'm looking forward to that uh, day of ruin. And it's going to be a long night. And when the dawn comes up in the morning, I think we'll be one step closer to creating the union than the kind of place we want, regardless of who wins these elections tonight. Dr. Gerald, Greg Carr. Dr. Greg Carr is chair of the African American Studies Greg. Department course, at, Nesta, thank you. at Howard University, the HU. <laughs> you know, brother. <laughs> we're, we're grateful for uh, him being with us. I'm Askia Mohammed here in Washington with Greg Carr. And uh, joining us in Los Angeles, we have Ernesto Arce. Ernesto Arce. Yes. 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 KPFK yes. <laughs> news here. Che. Yes. Say. <laughs> Pacifica Radio's national midterm election coverage. Let America be America again, reimagining the American dream. We invite you to support your local community radio station. Stay with us.
Good evening, everyone, and you're listening to Hour 4 of Pacifica Radio News Live coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. I'm Oscar Fernandez here in Washington, D.C., joined by Abby Roberts, and I'm also here with Ernesto Arce, who's in Los Angeles, with KPFK as well. And once again, we are in the middle of live coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. Um, Ernesto, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Oscar. Good to be on. So right now we don't have any headlines at the moment, nothing groundbreaking yet, but we will have them before the end of this particular hour. Quite a lot to cover at this particular hour with regards to a discussion, regards to democracy, and of course immigration as well later in this in the second half as well. So again, once again, I'm here joined by Avery Roberts and quite a lot that we've seen in the last few, few hours. It's been almost... Um, you know, quiet in D.C. as soon as everyone voted, and now all eyes and ears are on are on television and, of course, on Pacifica Radio, checking to see the latest on what's going on. So how have you been seeing it, Abby? Um, I've just been hanging in there. You know, I definitely am focusing a lot of my personal attention on our local elections here um, from city council.